Hey guys, what you're about to listen to is a podcast on the entire Battle of Attu, part of the Aleutian Islands campaign. I did this podcast with my friend Ian, and we tried to give you the very best account possible of this often overlooked part of the Pacific War. For those of you hearing this first at the Patreon, thank you so much for joining, you guys are awesome. And for those of you who don't know, I have a Patreon account where you can get exclusive podcasts. You can find all of this at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. And hey, all of you audio listeners, I want to hear more from you. Please check me out at the Pacific War Channel Discord, or simply drop a comment over on the Pacific War Channel on YouTube, and let me know what you want to hear more about. Now, after stating all of that, this is Blood, Blizzards, and Banzai upon Atu. Well, hello everybody, this is the Pacific War Channel. I am Craig, and I'm joined here by my friend Ian. How are you? Hi there, how's everyone doing? And uh, just, you know, do a bit of housekeeping. For those of you who maybe this is the first time you stumbled on to the Pacific War Channel podcast, and maybe you're coming over from the Pacific War Week by Week podcast, and this is super confusing, I am Craig. I narrate two podcasts for Kings and Generals. That's the Age of Conquest, the Fallen Rise of China podcast, and the Pacific War Week by Week podcast. And to make matters more confusing, I have a YouTube channel that is the Pacific War Channel, and it has an associated podcast, which I am now trying to figure out what to do with, because it seems a little redundant since I do a... <laughs> like a, a lot of podcasts. Yeah, yeah it's like a four-year Pacific War series for another company. It's like I kind of have to figure out what to do here. So what I thought is I've been listening to The Rest is History for quite a while and, so, and some other history podcasts, and I really like the uh, the format. So I already do two single narration podcasts and I thought, you know, it'd be much more fun to do something that's similar, but with like a co-host or, you know, with guests. So we're going to try and do that for the first time here with the Battle of Attu. And my friend Ian over here knows a lot about the Pacific War, but you have told me you don't know so much about this battle. Um, well, my general knowledge of it is, uh, well, I'll admit I'm, like, a little ignorant on it. I just know that it's a resounding defeat for the Japanese, like, almost massacred to the last man. And it was their last gamble to take, uh, uh, some of the Aleutian Islands in, uh, in Alaska. That it was. And it's... So hopefully, like, you can, uh, you can elaborate for me. And it's no coincidence that you wouldn't know too much about it because this battle is really overlooked. And the Aleutian Islands yeah, campaign... Yeah, well, it wasn't, wasn't too many players. There was only like 2,000 uh, troops on each side, roughly. Well, actually, for the Americans, it's so, pretty huge. It's about 15,000. Well, yeah. Yeah, they, obviously, they're closer to their reinforcements. But it's not like one of those large-scale battles. So, no, yeah, no. it can be overlooked. I think the thing that's cool that might entice people... Uh, who don't know anything about the Battle of Attu, is it is compared to some of the battles in the South Pacific, like take um, take Guadalcanal, for example, in terms of brutality. It obviously is not the same yeah, climate. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's not the same climate. I mean, these are polar opposites, no pun intended, but uh, it was absolutely brutal. So the other battles that occur in the Aleutians are pretty much not significant. They Not much happens, but this one was shocking and uh it ends with a 
terrific ending. It is intense. Mm -hmm. It's something on par with what happened at Saipan. But uh, starting all of that... Yeah, it's uh, that, uh, that last Banzai charge. Exactly. But Spoiler to, alert. Man, but to, uh, to start off, I guess, <laughs> you know, you, you have to start off as to why are people fighting on Attu, let alone the Aleutians. So that, you have to go all and, the way... Oh. And, go for and it. And give, a, you know, the date. Well, it was, uh, it was 1943, if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. But to, to go back in time... Like I know... Uh, I mean, that's two years after... Uh, no, well, about one year after Midway, because I know, like, part of the Midway push, uh, they diverted their some of their forces to the north to cover the Aleutians, gearing up for a potential invasion there. So I guess the it didn't end there. Exactly. So, to start off, technically... For the campaign, the Aleutian Islands uh, it simultaneously occurred during the Battle of Midway. So the Battle mm -hmm. of Midway had an unbelievably complex amount of moving parts, which is kind of one of the reasons yeah. why it fell apart. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yamamoto... yeah, having that entire northern force there that potentially could swing south if needed, but if they were to swing south, it would take like two to three days to reinforce the center force. Exactly. I mean, on paper... It's, like, it's not logical. On paper, it was brilliant because if everybody went, if everything went perfect and all the timing was perfect, it would have worked. Yeah. Like, for example, the forces that were allocated to invading the Aleutians, yeah. the carriers that went up there would have had time to come down and, you know, do the decisive battle against the Americans as Yamamoto would have yeah. predicted. But of course, the Americans trying to trying to cover the entire Pacific, and and what's the saying? Uh, um. Every war plan is like thrown out as soon as the uh, the battle starts. So, like the only thing you can depend on with a a war plan is it to not go your way. Exactly, which is honestly Expect a the unexpected. That was Yamamoto's one of his greatest pitfalls. Is he overly complicated things? I mean, it wasn't necessarily just his fault. Uh, the army had kind yeah. of messed up mm. Midway by adding new elements to the play that weren't supposed to be there. Like invading Midway, for example, was never on the table. Yeah. And, uh, well, the Aleutians... Yeah, but, like, how, how rude of the enemy not to go by your plan, you know? Come on. <laughs> exactly. It's not very gentlemanly. Uh, so, exactly like what happened at Midway, uh, the Americans had broken the codes, and they knew that a force was going to be going up and uh, invading the Aleutians. But they also knew that uh, the force was... Not that it was a diversion, but it wasn't significant. And, to, to be honest, the Americans, I mean... When you want to look at priorities, the, pr the priority was to try and defeat the Kitabutai. So they were willing to sacrifice yeah. what assets they had in the island chain, the Aleutians, and they did. The Japanese, easily, under Vice Admiral Boshiro Hosegaya, they land a force of about 1,140 infantry. It's led by Matsutoshi Hozumi, who was a major, and they land at Holtz Bay. Now, for those of you who <laughs> don't have a map on hand, uh, to try and describe the Aleutians... Uh, you know, they're frigid islands. I mean, they are, they're not full of snow, so don't picture only snow. There, there's grass and everything, you know, it's kind of, I guess you could say it's kind of like Canadian looking, uh, but they have, uh, for, for Atsu, they have pretty large mountain ranges and they're, there they are, uh, very snowy. Uh, so they, they land in Holtz Bay, which is one of the countless bays around the island. It's one of the larger ones. There's another one called Massacre Bay, which is uh, ominous <laughs> a little bit. Wow. That's, uh. Was that named before or after? Well, before. 
but uh is that something to do with like seal hunting or something yeah probably actually i'm not too sure because I, there's a lot of uh the mountains that are gonna have names. Sealing. a lot of the mountains on atu have names uh based off of people who died fighting during this battle but uh for massacre bay i would assume it was something some, something else uh, but I guess to go on a little sidetrack here, uh, they land completely uncontested. There's literally about, I think... What, what, what was the strategic and like importance uh, here? Like, did the Americans have uh, an airfield or a, a refueling uh, port for their ships? Or No, so there was two... The two biggest islands that were important were Kiska and Atu. There, there's, of course, there's a lot. There's like Kamchika and Adak and all these other ones. But uh, Atu is the closest to Japan that the Americans technically held. And uh, after that was Kiska, both uh, the Japanese wanted to seize to just create large airfields so that they could uh, harass the Americans, theoretically. Mm. Because that turns out not to, to be viable for, for, for many reasons. But mm. uh, on the island itself, there's literally just uh, 40, at, um, 40 uh, what do you call it? You call them indigenous peoples? Like residents. Yeah. There, uh, there was also three forty people. Eh? Yeah, it was about 40 or so Alutes. And there was about, I think, three Americans that were operating kind of like a radio station. One was a married couple. Mm. And uh, two, the two, uh, two male Americans are, are killed once they invade the island. The woman is actually, tragically, she is taken with some of the Alutes to concentration oh, camps. I, I can only imagine her, uh, like, the tragedy that befalls her. Uh, I don't know her personal story. I know that she didn't end up staying at a concentration camp. She went to... Um, it was like a, a hotel where Australian nurses were because they were uh, captured during other battles, like in uh, Malaysia oh. and stuff. So she might have not had it so bad because the atrocities didn't happen so much in the home islands. It's kind of outside of the home islands. But yeah, yeah she probably stuff happened for sure. Uh, tragically, yeah. it's actually more tragic for the Aleuts. Uh, the indigenous population, a bunch of them get just tossed into boats and thrown over to Hokkaido, Japan, and they're put in concentration camps. But as a result of the invasion, the Americans suddenly, uh, they evacuate all the Aleuts from all the other islands. I guess you would say to protect them from the, uh, the Japanese invasions that are going to be coming. Uh, they're put in well, internment is, camps, though, in it, America. <laughs> that, that can't sit well with the Americans. I mean, this is uh, an invasion of their territory, not just, the uh, you know foreign territory in the pacific like this is uh american territory it's the only time uh, like their yeah. own territory yeah it's one of the only times america is actually invaded mm. so the Aleuts get uh put in concentrate i mean i'm not going to call what the Amer the place the americans put the Aleuts was not a quote-unquote concentration camp but the conditions were actually terrible a lot of them committed suicide because of all sorts of terrible reasons so it's a weird example of this indigenous population being interned by both sides of the war it's pretty awful yikes uh but to go forward in time so the japanese have now captured some of these aleutian islands um they don't really have a long-term strategy as to what they're doing with them so by may of just to have them it will it, send it a kind message of, like we can take your we can take your land also because Midway, as you know, went terribly. So they wanted to seize any victory. So they kind of had them. They're like, okay, well, to boost the morale, we took American territory. Uh, we'll build airfields on these islands, theoretically, to bomb and attack, you know, the islands right. closer okay. to I Alaska. Could see, I can see an airfield up there for, like, being strategic. 
absolutely like you yeah. can start hitting deeper into alaska go into canada oh yeah yeah and uh so the japanese but that you have to build an airfield and uh, japanese weren't like necessarily known for being able to build their airfields out in the middle of nowhere from scratch oh no it took them uh, I can't remember. I, I did have notes somewhere. I think it took them something like a year to make something, and it took the Americans the equivalent of a month. Uh, actually, yeah, that was it, in the it South Pacific. Comes down to, yeah, it comes down to their logistical train. Like the the Japanese were not capable of uh, landing the the necessary like hardware, you know, tractors and that to to build these airfields. Where the Americans, like, they had it down to a T eventually. Yeah, but uh, this is an interesting case because the Americans aren't able to do anything for a long time because as the Japanese find out, it's nearly impossible to have aircraft fly anywhere in the Aleutians. The hmm. weather has these things, I think they're called wallaways or something. It's like a very strong gust of cold wind that just randomly occurs and it takes down so many pilots. It's unbelievably dangerous to fly reconnaissance, to try and bomb. And there's like no visibility, especially for, uh, for carrier planes. They, a lot of them they'll oh, launch yeah. and never Doesn't, come back. Especially if you're an inexperienced pilot yeah. within those conditions. So the Atu garrison kind of changes over time, and I don't want to bore people with like the numbers, but to get closer to the story, by 1943 of May, the Atu garrison is now 2,630 men strong, and it's led by Colonel Yasuyo Yamazaki, and their garrison is designated the 2nd District North Seas Garrison Force. Uh, there's also um, one man who was known as, uh, he was a doctor in the medical field, uh, Paul Nabuo Tatsuguchi. And the only reason why I bring him up, uh, he was with the Garrison Field Hospital. He wrote a diary uh, throughout the war and throughout this battle. And it's kind of one of the greatest primary sources of what was going on for yeah. the Japanese. Because not anybody really, there was like 20 people who survived on the Japanese side. Hmm. So the Americans, uh, for a very long so, time... Uh, Go ahead. Um, well, okay, so you get like him as a primary source. Uh, was he reliable in like um, describing the the weather, the climate out there, like how oh, right. well uh, uh, the Japanese were equipped? Because like I, I would imagine like you can get some pretty severe like negative temperatures up there. Oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're gonna get like, into you know, that. Yeah. Minus twenty, minus thirty, minus forty uh, Celsius. Yeah, no, he's a very uh, good primary source. Uh, I guess you could say because he was a doctor, he was much more reliant than someone else. Mm -hmm. like, he had no reason to lie about things. And, uh, yeah, it's not your average private writing in his journal. Yeah, he also, uh, I think he had an American education, if I'm not mistaken. So he, I think he could speak English. And I think he actually was a Christian too, which was unusual. But um, he, uh, he wrote a lot about his own hardships and i can honestly say i don't think he censored anything because he talks about how he <laughs> almost died of diarrhea and stuff so yeah Oof. pretty messed up but uh he's a primary source and uh you have kind of like a day-to-day -day how bad the situation is getting for those around him and that's it, it tells you a lot about what's going on on the japanese side uh-huh but uh, by, by May of 1943, the Americans had been bombing the Japanese-held islands. The Japanese tried to bomb their islands back. So if you were looking at a map of, like, what is Alaska today and uh, the other tip of the Pacific Ocean where Russia is, these islands that kind of just jut out between on the north, uh, it's kind of like the Americans are leapfrogging, hopping towards where the Japanese are. 
And uh, the Japanese at this point, they want to hold on to Kiska and Atu simply because if the Americans take it, technically the Americans could build airfields of their own there and hit the home islands. So in an alternate history, if things went so bad, so bad in the Central and South Pacific and the Americans for some reason had to use the North Pacific, they could have invaded and bombed Japan from places like Atu and Kiska. Uh-huh. Well, it is a shorter route. Yeah, that's for sure. It was something that the commanders in Alaska wanted, obviously because they were in command there, but it was unbelievably unfeasible simply because of the weather. Like mm. y- y- you were losing more aircraft to just weather than the enemy. It's Well, even to this day, like you would consider that region like extremely rural. Oh yeah. Like just to get uh just to get up there like you're talking about several different uh flights and their specialized aircraft to survive those temperatures yeah and uh so for months you have to imagine they were bombing the hell out of these two islands and they've already conquered other smaller islands like adak uh and stuff and uh they have been preparing an operation to invade initially they wanted to invade kiska because if you're looking at a map kiska's closer to the right to the american side but rather ingeniously they decided they were going to bypass Kiska and hit Atu. And this is called Operation Land Crab. The reason why they want to do it is they think if they take Atu, then, well, Kiska is completely isolated. It's stuck. And that the Japanese will just have to abandon it. So they'll evacuate Kiska. And that's exactly what happens. Unfortunately, the Americans kind of misjudged how many units would be on Atu. They thought there would be quite a lot more. So... For the operation, they're sending an entire division. It's the, it's the 7th Division under Major General Albert Brown. That's 15,000 men, a full division, by the way. And uh, overall command... It's, oh, it's better to overestimate than underestimate. Uh, ironically, when it comes to Kiska, which was a dual American-Canadian uh, operation, we sent another full division and the island was abandoned, so there was no Japanese on it. Okay, and, it's just like, yeah, yeah, wasteful use of resources. and there's, a, there's actually this whole myth. A lot of people who watch YouTube videos would know that uh, there's this idea the Americans, Canadians couldn't see anything. So they accidentally started killing each other and shooting at each other. It's, it's not actually true. It, they just happened to run into booby traps the Japanese had left. And there's quite a few casualties. But a lot of the casualties, like, yeah. yeah, a lot of the casualties, again, it's just frostbite and uh, cold condition stuff, exposure. Mm. Uh, very embarrassing though, because Canadians we we made like a special unit for it, and, and it just kind of sucks. But uh, back to at two. So Major General Albert Brown, Seventh Division is going to be the guys on the ground, but overall command is going to be an admiral. It's Francis Rockwell, and uh, for the Air Forces, they got Major General William Butler's Eleventh Air Force, who've been bombing all these islands for for months at this point. They've kind of mm-hmm. nailed how to operate in these conditions. So, yeah, so they're familiar yeah. with the region. Yeah, and they're familiar with the risk because the amount of aircraft the, the 11th Air Force lose just, just to weather, it's absolutely incredible. It, it was bad. So uh, to soften up for the operation, they do something rather ingenious. They start bombing a month prior, like in April, Kiska, really heavily. And we're talking, I think like 100,000 bombs or something are dropped on Kiska. But right just at the tip of May because they're going to be hitting Atu, they slowly change their target to Atu. So they're just trying to like confuse the Japanese as to their intentions and 
for a lack of better words, I mean, Kiska is, is closer. It would seem more evident to the Japanese that Kiska is going to get uh, hit. So the Japanese actually make this entire operation to rescue the Kiska guys. And they send like this incredible sneaky little naval force that sneaks through a blockade, gets all the guys off Kiska out. But because of this, there was nothing left to get the guys on Atu out. So they're basically, they're left oh, to die. Boy. The guys on Atu don't know this uh, until uh-huh. kind of the end. So to jump into it, Operation Land Crab saw, as I said, the 7th Division. So this includes the, uh, the 1st Battalion, 17th Regiment. That's Colonel Frank Cullen, who leads this. And they're going to be landing at Red Beach on Holtz Bay. So for those of you who don't have like a map out, I would just Google the Battle of Atu. I think the Wikipedia page would probably have a decent map. Uh, and their force is going to be called Northern Force because that's the northern part of the island. Colonel Edward Earle's 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 17th Regiment, and the 2nd Battalions of the uh, 32nd Regiment, they're going to be landing at Blue and Yellow Beaches at Massacre Bay. So they're going to be Southern Force. And then there's a third, much smaller, specialized unit. It's Captain William Willoughby's 7th Scout Company. And they're of the, the 7th Cavalry Reconnaissance Troops. They're going to be landing at a place called Scarlet Beach. And we'll call them the, the Scout Battalion. There's also a, a special little other unit that's held in reserve that they didn't think they would need. It's uh, the 4th Regiment, and they're actually trained for Aleutian warfare, whereas the rest of these guys are not at all. Where were they uh, based out of? So to go into this, because this is kind of like a giant thing, the 7th Division are victims of kind of World War II events. They were or- originally pinned for the uh, Northern African, the North Africa campaign. So they were training in desert warfare. So I want to probably get... uh, equipped for desert warfare also. Well, initially that they had some uh, some winter gear. I mean, they they do have winter gear, and I'll talk about that soon. But the Seventh Division initially they were a, a motorized division, and then well. <laughs> the North African campaign comes to a close rather abruptly. You know, they're defeated. So the 7th Division get put into limbo. They had been training in the Mojave Desert, uh, California, for, for you know a long, long time. And then they're just told, okay, so you're not going to be a motorized division anymore. Uh, now you're going to be an infantry division. And they continue to train desert warfare. And then all of a sudden they're told, oh, uh, shit, well, we need units. Uh, you're going to be going to Atu. So <laughs> these guys that are... And for, for, for people listening, if you don't know much about World War II, it's like when you say you're being trained for desert warfare, th- this is very different from regular training. Yeah. And uh, training for Atu for a frigid, colder climate, th- these are, you know, it's c- completely different things. They're given very, very little time uh, for the training for Atu, and uh, it'll show. Uh, not so much in, you know, combat training. It's more so how do you survive the elements that actually comes into play. Yeah, you're talking, you know, hot and cold. Uh, like, let's say you're training for desert warfare and you get uh, uh, shipped off to uh, uh, a jungle cl- climate. Like, at least you're going to have, like, a similar degree of heat. But, like, you're talking here, polar opposite. Yeah. So I, I'm sure the next... Like, that's, qu- that's a shock. I'm sure the next question you'd have is, these guys are training and that's all fair. And, you know, we, we don't really think about this, but what about the clothing? So the- Yeah. We're talking about extreme winter. Now, there was an enormous amount of, uh, sorry audience, but I'll use my French terms, fuck-ups during this operation. 
Uh, I would imagine on on both sides, like were the Japanese uh, outfitted with uh, rigorous like winter clothing before being sent, or yeah, no, was uh, that like a, a supply? This is actually, a, I guess, this is kind of funny because usually, you know, it usually the Japanese are notorious for logistical failures, but in this case, they're perfect. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese were perfectly equipped for winter. Uh, they had a lot of previous experience. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard about the Siberian intervention after World War One. Uh, not necessarily. So, uh, but I know, like, uh, they they do have experience in some uh, uh, colder climate uh, warfare, Manchuria, like winter yeah. warfare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, just in China, you you would get a little bit of, like that colder climate, like Manchuria, especially in the northern parts. But after World yeah. War One, uh, the Americans were in on this too. Uh, the Russians, you know, they went communist, and there was attempts to defeat the Red Army before it would take over the uh, the the nation. So it was like the Russian Civil War. It was the Whites versus the Reds. Yeah. So a bunch of international forces came over to fight for the Whites, but they had to go through Siberia. The Americans, British, Canada, everybody went. Uh, the Japanese had the lion's share. They sent the most units because they were the most <laughs> adamant about defeating Probably. communism. <laughs> But uh, the Japanese learned during the Siberian intervention what to wear during these harsh climates. So they didn't change too much from their old gear that they would have used for World War One. It's, you know, a great yeah, Well, coat. that's invaluable experience. Exactly. What's, what's ironic is the Americans were there too. But as you know, between World War One and World War Two, the United States kind of just dropped the ball with its army. They, yeah, they kind of had like an isolationist policy. And- yeah. But uh, so the Japanese, you're looking at uh, large great coats, uh, those woolly kind of hats. You, you almost think of when you're thinking of like Mongolian Russians, like that have the flaps that go over, but like good, nice winter flaps. Yeah. Waterproof. That's good the most gloves, good, good boots, yeah. often overlooked. Boots that are waterproof. Clothes that are waterproof. Very so, important. Very like, important. We're talking like fur-lined rubber boots. Rubber boots. Like they came with appropriate things, caps, hoods, the boots, whatever. Now, people that were in the Alaska Command made recommendations of what to wear. So the 4th Regiment, which is independent of the 7th Division in this for the Americans, is the only one who kind of has real training and understands this stuff. Uh... Everyone didn't listen to them when they were setting this up. So people who weren't aware of the Aleutian conditions had a lot of planning. Uh, they were part of the planning for the Battle of Attu. And uh, they went with a lot of questionable choices for clothing. Uh, the only way to describe it is if you can think of hiking clothes in like cold places, but you don't expect to get wet. That's kind of, it seems to be what they were thinking. Like bringing a, a windbreaker, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, wearing it as a winter jacket so the most I guess here in canada in canada we're familiar with that like, exactly you know, it gets cold fast so their clothes were perfectly fine for cold uh they were insulated they, that wasn't the issue most of it if not all of their clothes were not waterproof yeah, so a quick way to get hyperthermia <laughs> yeah. uh their boots were leather so that right there that's kind of the crux of it they had non-waterproof shackleton boots like we're talking hiking kind of the leather boots uh good for going in the forest i guess and stuff but as soon as they get wet that's the issue it's uh you're gonna get you know you're gonna get trench foot you're gonna get frostbite and for for most people who are trained uh, to fight in winter weather you understand that if you're if your boots get wet 
it doesn't matter how cold it is outside. You have to take the boots off to take your socks off and yep. your feet. Yeah, you're going to be really cold and you're going to get frostbite because of the, the outside exposure. But you can't have wet stuff on your feet because that makes it much worse. Yeah. Uh, basically, none of the men knew this. They weren't trained properly. They even had manuals with them. I, I guess they weren't using them properly. But uh, that's gonna take uh, that's gonna take a lot of men down, uh, especially uh, frostbite and trench foot. The trench foot's horrible. A lot of guys are gonna have to get their feet cut off and stuff. Gangrene. It's terrible. So. Back to I, I, I was going to ask you, like, did the, the Americans have an advantage going into this? You know, just. Oh, numbers. Well, because they're the, the owners of, uh, of Alaska. Yeah, well, obviously with the with the numbers, but like because they're the residents of Alaska, like, you know, they wouldn't take it for granted. Like they would go in prepared, like knowing that the temperatures that are possible there, the, the conditions. Uh, it's like, uh, oh, OK, we're prepared for that. It, it's sounding like the opposite, though, like a little yeah. a little bit arrogant. So I'm making it, I'm really simplifying it. It's a lot more complex than that. They had things like raincoats. Uh, there were great coats and other things, but they were packed in different containers. And the idea was that like they would get to the island and that the logistic line would come up and bring them things like they didn't even have sleeping bags. Most of the forward units for days, they were sleeping out in exposure because the logistics absolutely failed. Uh, they completely misjudged the beach landings and how to move supplies from the beaches. Everything got like locked down. They couldn't move anything. So really, it was kind of like they showed up thinking they were going to be carrying all this stuff, and they couldn't. And they just had to make do for probably a week and a half into it. And <laughs> that's what really got them. A week and a half? My God. It, it, yeah, oh, it was... There was enormous communication problems. The beach supplies it was a catastrophe and uh the japanese benefited greatly from this like <laughs> yeah, this is a significant boost for them i mean it's not going to make the difference we're talking about fifteen thousand guys versus uh, almost yeah. two thousand but uh all the reports you ever hear from people who witnessed this was just horrible stuff like i have one from uh, captain william wallaby uh the scout leader he had this quote the ones who suffered were the ones who didn't keep moving they stayed in their holes with wet feet. They didn't rub their feet or change socks. So that led to a lot of gangrene, a lot of uh, black toes. I mean, you and me have had that experience once. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking has to be painful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, out in, you know, minus 35 temperatures with uh, wet feet and uh, you get home and all of a sudden yeah, you have black toes and you didn't feel it happening. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say this. The Americans had uh, the advantage when it came to food. Because they blockaded the two islands. So they have a large naval force that's blockading this. So the Japanese, Yeah, for a month at this point, eh? Yeah, so the Japanese, uh, they lose the ability to receive um, rations. Uh, well, sorry, provisions, because they have nothing that can come in. The only thing that could possibly come in is uh, aircraft, which do. And they can't see what they're doing. So they're dropping supplies, hoping it gets to the men. But at best, it's getting probably to the men at the main village, which is Chichigolf. But other than that, like there's guys on mountains, they're not going to be seeing those supplies. So there's a lot of Japanese units who just starve because of this. Yeah, and imagine that there's not a lot of foraging and and hunting going on like well, within yeah, the island yeah. itself. Uh, before the Americans, like, probably the. Well, imagine that that kind of community there beforehand was a, more of a fishing community. 
Yeah, uh, salmon and trout mostly. And the Japanese were sustaining themselves. So when the, before the Americans land, they would, you know, go to some of the streams and all that and they would fish. And, fish uh, as much as you can, preserve it with salt or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, the Americans actually <laughs> got desperate. There is one story I heard. They started to use their grenades. They throw them into streams and into like the ocean trying to kill fish so that they could eat. Redneck fishing. <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that was, you know, how to survive, so... But uh, I, I do remember, I got one quote here from, it's Paul Tetsuguchi, and he said on the 28th, ate half-dried thistle. This is the first time I have eaten something fresh in months. It's a delicacy. So yeah, the Japanese were, food was an enormous issue for them. And uh, for those who might not know, um, that's kind of what gets you. When you're in a colder climate, you need to eat so that your body can continue to produce heat. So you want to conserve yeah, all the energy. energy you have and basically you don't want to move much and you just want to eat and like you can probably survive that way. But if you don't have food, you're just you're going to die quicker. You, you starve a lot faster also because yeah. your body's like spending energy to, to create more heat for yourself. Exactly. And I think we'll jump back into the battle. I haven't even started. <laughs> this is going to be a long one, I feel. Well, I mean half of these kind of battles like they they start before they begin and it, it's with conditions like this and uh yeah often it's overlooked you know like the conditions of the men like okay are they well supplied well equipped with uh proper gear and uh clothing are they well fed or not like they, these are all uh uh points that can decide a battle before they happen exactly you know the force with the lower morale uh, tends to lose first and as far as the battle itself is concerned, for those looking at a map, uh, the first thing you'll, you notice is there's three different areas the Americans are landing, but the Japanese are concentrated in this little harbor, kind of like, I'd almost call it like in the middle of the island. It's Chichigolf. And surrounding this harbor is just these mountain ranges to the north and to the south. The Americans are going to have to traverse through passes and these mountains to try and get to the garrison within Chichigolf. So have the, the Japanese uh, set up like their iconic, you know, defensive uh, networks, like probably oh, yeah. not, you know, uh, digging underground, but, you know, having machine gun traps and, and whatnot. Uh, it's actually really cool. So as you can imagine, it's a completely different climate. Uh, it is, I would say, on par to some of the greatest island battles in the Pacific. So the Japanese didn't have much in terms of like steel or concrete pillboxes. I mean, it wasn't like they, they didn't have that really on hand. But it was interesting to have pit trenches for your guns and everything. And just even your foxholes on mountain peaks in the snow. Because what happens is there's a fog that kind of goes over the higher elevations, but not in the lower valleys. So the Americans are all coming from the lower valleys and they're not wearing winter white or anything. They stick out like a sore thumb. But when oh, they boy. when they look up, I mean, there's some. Uh, I have some quotes here from the Americans. They describe it like they're looking at mashed potatoes. They can't see anything. It's just you know tracer fire coming down the mountains at them. So the Japanese have an unprecedented amount of concealment, and they're going to use it to their advantage. Uh, they don't have much in terms of artillery. They got like four big pieces like 75 millimeters and they have them on two hills basically it's uh Jarmay's pass and a and a place that we're going to call hill x now 
the Japanese have already taken up these positions on these hills because Yamazaki, basically, he's given intelligence in early May that they're going to be invaded. He doesn't know how many men are going to come and invade them, but he knows they're going to come. And he knows that he has 2,600 guys. He can't protect the beaches. So he doesn't do the, you know, the, the classic Japanese destroying them at the beach tactic. He, he throws that out the window right away. He takes every single man he has and he puts them on high More elevations. like Iwo Jima, like let them come in closer. Those exactly. are going to be the killing fields where you can converge all like uh, angles of fire on one point. Yeah. So he chokes all the main passes he knows that they have to take to get to Chichigolf. So you could you could think of it as like it's three different layers of these different mountain passes and each is a perimeter. The Japanese are only on high elevations. They're always shooting downwards at the Americans. So the Americans are always in a lower valley, no matter right, if they're coming. one. <laughs> exactly. They have the high ground. <laughs> and as we know, yeah, the high ground is, you know, a, a big tactical advantage. And uh, the overall strategy for the Japanese is, in Yamazaki's mind, he doesn't know that uh, they won't be evacuated. And to be evacuated, the only harbor that's available to them is Chichigov Harbor, which the Americans can't just land at. They would be massacred. That's definitely not a place that the boats could make it and do stuff. Uh, so Yamazaki thinks, like Kiska, there might be some submarines that will come and rescue his men. Uh, but he's also not an idiot. He basically thought, okay, we're going to fight and do delaying actions as long as possible. The three outcomes of this is, number one, we're all killed. We'll kill as many of them as we can. Number two, if there's no evacuation, we'll try to just head into the mountains. Guerrilla warfare, just try and survive until maybe we can get evacuated in the future. And then number three, he's still holding on to like the hope the Japanese will like the Navy will come and rescue well, them. Yeah. Didn't the Japanese Navy have a plan to send a uh, like a pretty large uh, surface force to, to aid the island, but it was eventually abandoned? Yeah. Like, uh, they were going to send like the Musashi and uh, other uh, a couple other battleships, several heavy cruisers. Like it, it would have been a, like a pretty impressive naval force, uh, but they were like gauging was it worth it or not and they like ultimately like abandoned the plan yeah they had lost like too should many battles. should that naval yeah should that naval force uh entered the area like yeah i could uh i can imagine it changing the the tide in the japanese favor but like that's a lot of assets to uh to swing that way and then expose yourself to i i'd imagine there's a lot of uh, american naval forces in the area that could counter that yeah, so what ended up happening for months prior, uh, the Japanese and the Americans had fought m numerous uh, naval battles, and the American, mm. it, it was kind of hit or miss, uh, but the Japanese lost more than they won. And uh, in it, the it end, was the time where it was it was really starting to swing in the Americans' favor. Yeah, well, I mean, this is 1943. It's on, you know, the initiative. As soon as Guadal the Guadalcanal campaign, as soon as that one is, uh, is a loss for the Japanese, they lose the initiative for the war, and they're on the defensive. Yeah. But uh, for the for the north, they they had a good naval force for a, for a long time under Bushiro, but uh, he he's significantly defeated, and the Americans then make a blockade, and it's it's a very large blockade at this point. Like the Japanese are now dwarfed by it. They do try to breach the blockade a few times, and it's a miracle they have a small force that gets through and it gets to Kiska, uh, but the force that tries to get to Atu, they're they're turned away. Yeah, it's not worth the mm. risk. Unfortunately for Yamazaki. Yeah, like, Lose an entire fleet for uh, 2,500 men, like, yeah, yeah, I hate exactly. to say, it just doesn't sound uh, costly. 
Yeah, no. And there was a lot more men on Kiska. There was a a significant number on Kiska, and there was a significant number of construction units on Kiska because they were also moving men from Kiska to Attu and stuff, and it it just didn't make sense. They also, they didn't think the Americans were going to attack Attu. They really thought it was only Kiska. So they, I guess, dropped the ball in that case. But, uh, so D-Day happens. The American landings go absolutely uncontested. And uh, there is a book I read where... Americans said on the north, on the southern beaches at Massacre Valley, I think it was Beach Yellow, uh, the only thing that could be heard was a single crow just on the beach, ominously cackling at them when they landed. So it was like, hmm, it's kind of creepy. Ooh, that's, e- that's eerie. Yeah. And uh, the thing that they noticed right away is a lot of these guys, you know, like, oh, we're going to a cold climate. The terrain is more of a mixture because it's very wet. This is an island in the middle of the North Pacific. So you, you're thinking in your head, there's snow. It's just snow. It's not. It's a lot of mud, very thick mud, muskig, which is, you know, that kind of pulpy mud with a bit of wood to it, and snow. A lot of rain, a lot of water. So as soon as they land, there's a nightmare for supplies. Everything gets stuck on the beaches. So their 105-millimeter howitzers, their, their big artillery, can't move past the beaches. Big problem for them. They literally have to get their like engineer guys to make kind of these like base f- floors on the beach just so the howitzers can be placed just properly. Move them. Yeah, and they can't move them anywhere, so they're gonna have to deploy them around the beaches. That's not gonna help them much. Now, for the guys in the southern part, they're gonna be going through Massacre Valley, and about two companies of the 303rd Independent Battalion are gonna be awaiting them on some high points. These guys are gonna have you know. Machine gun nests, rifle pits, a lot of snipers because the Japanese were notorious snipers and motor Mm -hmm. positions and such. So at 6 p.m., the first shots of the battle are actually going to be made by the artillery from the beaches. And uh, they're going to be on to, you know, any high vantage points that they can see. Because the Americans at this point, they assume the Japanese are up there. They're, They're guessing where they are. Yeah. And the whole point of the op- shooting. Yeah. the whole point of the operation is Southern Force and Northern Force and the Scouts are going to meet somewhere in the middle and then hit Chichigov Harbor. But to get to this kind of middle point, they're going to have to go through a lot of passes, a lot of heights. So Southern Force, they're advancing through Masker Valley. It's terrible, muddy stuff. They can't see anything. It's all foggy and white heights. The Japanese, meanwhile, can see them. They wait for them to get up close, and then they start to fire everything that they have. And the Americans are getting hit left, right, and center. They can't even advance up any of the ridges. They just pull back into the valley. They have to dig in. First day, that's what happens. For the north, uh, Willoughby Scouts, who advances before everyone else, it's a smaller force. They're specially trained for this, uh, unlike the others. And they're given like three days of food. So they land. They have to meet up with the other force that's near them called Northern Force, or they're dead. Because they don't have anything that can get to them. Like the only thing would be aerial drops, and not not good. In fact, the first thing that happens is some uh, the USS Nassau uh, it releases some wildcats, and they accidentally strafe the rubber boats. Willoughby scouts come in and shoot at them because they can't see anything. So not a good start for the scouts. <sighs> the American yeah, the scouts are like probably the most necessary at this point. Like you need that recon. Oh yeah. And they have a very specific task. So for the northern guys that are coming in, these two forces, the scouts and the northern force, there's a stronghold called Hill X. It's a high elevation with uh, some Japanese artillery protecting the area. 
And basically, it's protecting the advance to a small airfield the Japanese have. And uh, they, have a, they have a few camps out there. So you have to get past Hill X to advance. So the scouts are going to be basically going to the rear of Hill X because they're in like a more mountainous, awkward position. And mm -hmm. uh, for the first day, they don't even see any Japanese. So they just walk over and then they dig in about 800 yards away from Hill X. Meanwhile, the USS Nevada is bombarding uh, ridges at Ma on Massacre Valley, uh, specifically, you know, places like Jarmay Pass, where there is a super large cluster of Japanese that are firing down. And uh, the crossfire from all of this is just, it's devastating the Americans in the south. To the north, uh, the northern force is making their way to Hill X, but as soon as they land, unlike the southern force, uh, their beach is being hit by Japanese artillery. So the artillery is not necessarily hitting the men, because the men are obviously not going to stay at the beaches, but they can't really deploy all of their supplies as a result. So there's, there's a lot of boats just kind of sitting there. So basically, the northern force has to neutralize the artillery so that the rest of their stuff can land. So they have a problem on their hands. And uh, every single day, we're starting on like May the 11th here. Uh, we have the 11th Air Force from the Americans doing bombing campaigns, losing aircrafts to weather. By the way, a lot of crashes, especially Wildcat pilots crashing into hills. We have the one carrier, the USS Nassau, is launching Wildcats to help. We have battleships, destroyers, a few cruisers doing naval bombardments. And uh, the Americans will eventually get their artillery. But their artillery in the south is stuck on the beach and they can't even deploy their artillery in the north. And as you were saying, like visibility is an issue. So yeah. like having like reliable bombing runs and artillery uh, or uh, naval bombardments like actually hit the Japanese, like it's got to be difficult. Oh, yeah. And uh, again, fire going everywhere. I think one of the funniest things about this is the plan, the uh, Operation Land Crab, it was expected to be a three-day battle. So, uh, yeah, it uh, from the very offset, as soon as the men land, the general in command, Brown, he understands. He's looking at the mud. He's looking at the resistance the Japanese are giving. And he knows, yeah, this isn't going to be three days. This is impossible. Mm. So he immediately starts to send signals uh, for reinforcements, because there are reinforcements on the ships. Uh, the 32nd Infantry Regiments, there's a few battalions of them out there. And then there's that last one, that's the 4th Regiment, that's not part of the 7th Division. It's kind of just like this special thing on the side that has good training. But they didn't think they were going to be necessary. No one thought that they were going to be actually used. Problem is, he said... So they're kept there as a reserve unit, just in case. Yeah, they're actually uh, they're on Adak. They're on another island. They're going to be brought over last minute. But the problem is... Uh, General Brown is sending all of uh, these messages and they're going nowhere. There's literally no communication. The communication completely failed because they couldn't set up things properly. So he's sending messages. He thinks they're being sent to like Admiral Rockwell and other people. They're not. Rockwell has no idea what's going on. No one who's not on the island knows what's going on on the island. So that's going to cause a huge problem between the commander on the island, Brown, and the rest of them. But we'll get back to that. So uh, we're going to speed up to May the 13th. The Southern Force is now facing what's called Jarmaine's Pass. They've already faced it. They've been tossed back. They attacked the ridge. They're going up like 600 yards. They're getting gunned down by machine guns, rifle, motor fire, everything. So they keep going up, get beaten, come back maybe in the afternoon, get beaten again, keep digging in in the Massacre Valley. 
There's also some Japanese defending Clevisy Pass, which is kind of on the other side of Charmaine. So they're getting hit from both sides. They're making no progress. Meanwhile, to the north, uh, Willoughby's scouts are now to the rear of this place called Hill X. Northern force is to the right of Hill X, and they simultaneously start to assault it. As soon as Willoughby's scouts assault Hill X, the Japanese are startled to find someone to the rear, and they send a, a counterattack right away. They storm out, and it's a, it's a hell of a fight. It was so intense. When the Japanese got back to Hill X after fighting Willoughby's scouts, they thought that they were fighting a much larger force than they were. So they had no idea this was just like 500 guys. They thought they were fighting thousands. And that's going to play into what happens. Uh, again, artillery isn't really going to be happening just yet because they haven't gone out. They haven't neutralized the Japanese artillery. But uh, wildcats are strafing, sometimes friendly fire. And the uh, naval ships are bombarding. Now, uh, the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Regiment, lands at Scarlet Beach to reinforce them because uh, Brown has been requesting things and some communications do get through. Uh, but on May the 13th, we have the, like one of the first entries from Dr. Tatsuguchi, and he had this to write of the actions. Our two submarines from Kiska assisted us. They have greatly damaged two enemy ships. The enemy has advanced to the bottom of Misumiyama. That's the name of one of the hills the Japanese gave it. First Lieutenant... Suzuki died by shots from a rifle. Continuous flow of wounded to the field hospital. Took refuge in the trenches during the daytime and took care of the patients during the bombardment. Enemy strength must be a division. Our desperate defense is holding up well. So from the doctor, we can gauge the understanding of what they're facing is a full division, which would have scared the hell out of them, knowing that they're unbelievably outnumbered. Uh, he's running between, you know, certain points of combat, but he's going back to the field hospital, which is at the main town of Chichigolf. And he's one of a few different medical officers, so it's not just him, but it will turn out to just be him at the end. And uh, nothing too bad yet, you know. He ends off by saying, we're holding up well. Morale is still high, it seems. Yeah. The next day, the Southern Force, they hit Germany's Pass again. This time, you know, their because they have the advantage, their artillery can reach there from the beach, even though it's locked down. They got the Wildcats, naval bombardment. Uh, the weather is so bad this day, uh, three Wildcats actually crash into a mountain. So, all pilots dead, by the way. Tragedy, but keeps happening every day. So, anyone who flies, that's the risk in this climate. Uh, this time, yeah, especially if you're not familiar. Yeah. This time, they're getting about 300 yards away to the pass entrance. So they're making some ground, but I mean, this is slow. We're saying like it was like yesterday, it was like 600 yards. Today, it's 300. It's, it's very slow. Uh, today, Captain John Germain dies during the assault. Thus, that's why the pass is called Germain's Pass now. A lot of the passes are going to receive their names from dead American uh, units. Uh, during the night, Colonel Zimmerman is relieved. He's the commander of the 3rd Battalion, 17th Regiment. Uh, because he's found in a state of shock. He's lost a lot of men, and he needs to be relieved for now. Like, it's just a bad situation for him and his uh, battalion. So uh, the commander, uh, the other one, comes over and... Uh, oh, sorry, I just mixed up the names. Colonel Zimmerman relieved the battalion commander, whose name is Major James Montagu. I reversed who I was talking about. Montagu is in a state of shock, and he, uh, he's relieved by the 2nd Battalion, 32nd Regiment. So they're going to be taking up the fighting at the front, cycle the other guys in the back, and they'll come back at some point. 
sounds like the morale is starting to de- deteriorate for the the American side. Yeah, you got to remember they're told this is a three day battle, and they know. Yeah, they know this is not going to be. This is ridiculous. Meanwhile, uh, the southern beach is blue and yellow. They're completely clogged up with supplies. The boats are just sitting out there. Don't know what to do. The artillery is deployed on the beach, which is super unusual, and it can't move. So uh, to the north, the USS Nevada is finally able to neutralize the Japanese artillery, which was sitting on this point called the West Arm of Holtz Bay. It's a neat little point that juts out in the ocean a little bit, gives you a good vantage point. Uh, So now that that's been neutralized, Red Beach over in the north, they can finally unload and deploy their artillery, and they're going to hit Hill X with it. So Northern Force and Willoughby Scouts are now simultaneously assaulting this point, uh, Hill X. Uh, but as strong as Willoughby's scouts are and as like incredible they are at fighting right now, I mean, they're making the Japanese think that they're like much bigger than they are. Uh, they've run out of food and his casualties are ridiculous. So he's got 255 casualties out of like the 420 men that he's got suffering exposure, combat wounds, you name it. A lot of it's exposure, mind you. It's a lot of frostbite. It's because, again, the boots, they're, they're not waterproof. All these guys are, are they're getting ruined by this. That's over a 50% casualty rate in the yeah. first few days. And we're talking yeah, under the, you. You could describe that as, you know, that unit now being combat ineffective. Exactly. The problem is they are literally trapped. They don't have a They couldn't, like, get off the island. Their boats were literally strafed by their own aircraft. They need to get to Northern Force, who are on the other side of this hill. So they have to fight or die. There is attempts to airdrop, they fail because the pilots can't see. So they're fighting like lions because their lives are on the line. Now, mm-hmm. Yamazaki receives this report and it looks to him like, okay, this unit is much larger than it seems. So he thinks the scouts are probably like a thou- thousands of guys strong. And then there's this other force that's northern force. So he thinks a lot of them are in the north. So he's like, okay, give up Hill X, pull back to the next ridge, which is called Moore's Ridge. So he does. Where that. in reality, he yeah. could have made a push out and actually have, like devastated that American unit. Well, you know, there's a there's a few factors when he when he lost his artillery and now the Americans have their artillery. He knew, okay, Hill X is going to get hit by artillery. It's it's going to be pretty bad. So he he had a realization. He's like, okay, we need to get further. So he recognized line. he lost his advantage and okay, fall uh, fall back to the next line of defense, sort of thing. And you got to think about it this way. He's got probably like, we'll call it three main lines of defense in this. So this was planned. It is delaying actions, really. And uh, we have another uh, input from Tatsuguchi on the 14th. He says, Continuous flow of wounded to our field hospital caused by the fierce bombardment of enemy land and naval forces. The West Arm units have withdrawn to Shidegari Dai in a raid. I was ordered to the West Arm, but it was called off. Just lay down from fatigue in barracks. Facial expression of the soldiers back from the west arm is tense. They all went back to the firing line, though, soon. So, it's not like they're broken. They're fighting, you know, some guys are a little shell-shocked, but they're going back to fight. So, it's not a lost Mm. cause yet. But But it it is starting to take an effect. That's what's interesting about the diary entries, is each day you get the taste of, like, things are getting bad. Yeah. So it's the 15th. It, now, uh, Willoughby Scouts and Northern Force, they make contact, which sees Northern Force tell Willoughby Scouts, yeah, fall back, get food, you're kind of done. You're not going to be effective for a while. 
half of his men will fight eventually, but a lot of them are just completely evacuated because there's too much exposure damage from the cold. Uh, meanwhile, in the south, beaches still traffic jam. It's awful. General Brown is reporting how bad the situation is. He's trying to say, you know, there's mud, there's this. We need more reinforcements. There's things going on. None of the communications are going out. And now he's realizing. Still, eh? Yeah, now and now he's realizing this. So he literally travels onto Admiral Rockwell's flagship, the USS Pennsylvania. He's just going to speak to him directly. So once he gets on the ship, he requests the 1st Battalion, 4th Regiment, that one that was never supposed to be implemented. Uh, and he also asks for road construction equipment. Now, this is a, a problem. So Is that to start moving out the artillery pieces, like exactly. further inland and off the beaches? Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. He needs mm -hmm. it to be able to move this. Now, Rockwell is there. I mean, he's not on the island, but he's hearing firsthand accounts from from uh, Brown. So he has kind of an idea. Okay, things are really bad. This is not what we thought it was going to be. But he's not the guy making all the uh, decisions. So there's people above him, like Admiral Kincaid, who's not there. And there's other people in Alaska, like um, Buckner, Lieutenant General John Dewitt. The army guys I just mentioned, they really don't like Brown. They have a vendetta against him. They wanted to get rid of him. Admiral Kincaid hears about the requests for road construction equipment. And in his head, he was told this operation was supposed to be three days. This like is a red flag to him. He's like, what the hell is this general doing? He's trying to turn a three-day battle into something and, that's going to take weeks or and months. And he doesn't have all the facts at hand. Exactly. So he's, he's gauging the situation terribly. Yeah. So when he hears about this, he calls a meeting with these two other guys who aren't there either. It's Dewitt uh, <clears throat> and, uh, sorry, Simon Buckner and John Dewitt who both hate Brown, like I said. Uh, they just prompt, basically they just advise Kincaid, let's get rid of Brown, let's just relieve him. He's a terrible general, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's an idiot. So that's what happens, unfortunately. They make this decision, not knowing what's going on, I don't mind you. And uh, it's decided that Brown will be relieved by Major General Eugene Landrum. Now, uh, the communications fail again, so Brown isn't really told uh, that this is happening until Eugene Landrum is halfway there. So he can't even make a defense. Uh, he can't even make a plea to say, hey, don't send this guy. You don't know what's going on. He, he basically just has to suck it up. He's going to get relieved. So uh, in the meantime, Admiral Rockwell, all of his high explosive shells are basically used. So all of his bigger ships, they used up all of their ammunition. So now his entire naval force is basically a sitting duck if the Japanese Navy want to come and fight. Uh, so he basically tells everyone, hey, the little ships can stay that are going to move supplies, but the big boy ships, we have to get out of here. And that's that for them. Now, uh, we have another Dr. Tasuguchi diary entry for the 15th, and it goes like this. If Shitagai Dai, uh, that's more ridge, is taken by the enemy, the fate of the east arm is decided. So orders were given to destroy all the wounded soldiers by giving them shots in the arms and to die painlessly. At the last minute, there was an order from headquarters sector unit to proceed to Chichigov Harbor by way of Umanoze. That's uh, an English fishhook ridge. So what we just heard there from the good doctor is all the wounded soldiers were just basically given wow. a shot of morphine to die. So, I mean, I, I guess that's a courtesy in some sense. So like there, were, yeah. there was no hope for them moving them in that. Like, no. So they don't have still that's uh, yeah. that's tragic. 
And uh, I mean, this wasn't special for Atu. This you see this many times in the island warfare in the Pacific. Uh, can't move the guys if they had a medical unit. Morphine overdose them, walk away because honestly, they they can't waste the man hour to uh, to move the guys because food. Uh, even just think about it, like the guys who have to move these guys are going to have to eat more to conserve their heat. That's that's the way that they're thinking. <laughs> so, and, and uh, you know, what's the value on the loss of life? Yeah, it's uh, it's like the manual for artillerymen in Japan. Uh, it literally says in their manual that their guns are more valuable than them. So if it's a mm. choice between the guns or them, yeah, uh, it just shows how the uh, Imperial Japanese Army kind of works. I mean, you, you can see like the difference between uh, the Japanese and the Allied forces in that regard. Like the the value of life. Uh, dare I say that the Allies did put more of an emphasis on their uh, their troopers than that. Yeah, but also the United States had the advantage of good logistics and resources. So the the Japanese couldn't get food to these islands, so they they couldn't survive. Uh, completely. And from the beginning, uh, kind of knew that it was a lost cause. It was just like hold yeah. out as long as you can. Exactly. I mean, uh, do as much damage as you can. Just like any other island in the uh, South Pacific, Atu, it was a defend till you die, hold them back. That that was it. Now we come up to the 16th. So General Landrum arrives at Yellow Beach and he relieves General Brown. Uh, the men actually talk for, for a little bit. It's a super awkward meeting because Landrum immediately realizes that Brown is not in the wrong. And he personally tells Brown yeah. that he's not going to change the war plan. So he's going to use exactly what Brown's doing. And he tells everybody that he's going to do that because he felt that Brown shouldn't have been relieved. And it was like, it was the fault of the guys from the outside. They just didn't know what was going on. A little sidetrack note. um, The guys who hated Brown, uh, they go even further and they stop a promotion. He's going to receive later on too. They, they do end up messing with them even more in the future. Uh, Brown gets kind of royally screwed, but uh, he's gone. So he's going to be, uh, over in the mainland United States doing mostly training of units after this. Unfortunately for him. Yeah, it really wasn't his fault. Uh, but, you know, when you got paper generals and admirals. Yep. So the Southern Force now, uh, under the new commander, he asks them, okay, hit Jarmay's Pass again. Uh, same terrible results. To the north, Northern Force is now past Hill X. They've seized that. Uh, they've seized what was left of a destroyed little tiny airfield. And uh, there's a few camps around that actually have food provisions the Japanese had to abandon in their haste. And the Americans seize that and eat it. Much needed food pr- uh, provisions, probably. Yeah, yeah. That was a, a very bad call. And uh, now they're assaulting a place called Moor Ridge. And uh, they're immediately pinned down to the valley floor. It's, it's similar to what's happened to the boys over in the Massacre Valley. Uh, but ingeniously, they see like this steep little slope that's near the ocean side. They send a single company up it. They manage to sneak up and uh, they get right into the right flank of the Japanese. They go hand to hand combat and they manage to just get a toehold during the night. Japanese can't stop them. They throw counterattacks, doesn't work. So during the night and during the next day, the rest of the battalion manages to get more and more men through this toehold. And basically, the Japanese on Moor Ridge are in a terrible situation. Number one, they don't have any food. The food that would have been at the garrison at Chichigov Harbor, it's not like people are running up there and giving it to them. That's not possible in this mountainous countryside here. 
there were attempts by Japanese aircraft from Hokkaido to drop food, but every time they show up, they drop it over Chichigov because it's the only visible thing is this like little town. So any guy who's on a hill, you're not going to probably see a, an airdrop ever. So I remember I was reading reports from a book. The Japanese are eating cold rice. They got nothing else. They run out of that. And they're stuck on this mountain. They're isolated. They just got the shit kicked out of them at Hill X. So Yamazaki realizes, okay, I'm getting reports that these guys are just in an untenable position. So he's like, okay, you're going to back out slowly during the night, get off Moore's Ridge, and you're going to go over to a place uh, called, there's Clevisy Pass, there's the, there's a Fish Hook Ridge, and then where's, what's closer to them is a place called Prendergast Ridge. Prendergast Ridge is quite large, and there's a more defendable position. The more that they uh, withdraw closer to Chichigov Harbor, their defensive positions are better made. So it actually gets worse for the Americans the more they go in, like a kind of like a trap. Okay. Now we come up to the, the 17th. Northern Force now launches a night attack against Moor Ridge, and there's no one there. So it's completely abandoned, so they spend, you know... They've the already fallen back. Yeah. So they're like, okay, this is great. They consolidate their position on the, on the ridge, and now their artillery back over at the beach uh, can be moved, which is great. So they can move it to a good position to help them go forward. In the south, Jarmé's Pass is abandoned. So when Yamazaki made his order, basically what happened was when Moor Ridge had to be abandoned, it basically took away all the flank protection for the, uh, the guys on Jarmé's Pass. They had to get out, even though they were doing very well. So unfortunately, uh, Southern Force kind of got like a freebie there. And at the same time, the, uh, the first battalion of the 4th Regiment lands at Yellow Beach. So that's that special unit. Now on the 17th, we got another diary entry from Tatsuguchi. He has to say, the Yonikawa detachment abandoned the east and west arm to withdraw to Imenose, that's Fishhook Ridge. About 60 wounded came to the field hospital. I had to care for all of them by myself all throughout the night. Heard that the enemy carried out a landing in Chichigov Harbor. Everyone did combat preparations and waited. I had two grenades ready. <laughs> so, from that diary entry... Preparing, yeah. preparing for the worst... Yeah, he was going to kill himself. You, you can tell that uh, it's an unusual claim that someone was going to pop up right beside your garrison headquarters. Like that, that wasn't really a possibility. But, you know, these guys are scared and they're just hearing they're hearing rumors, basically. I didn't say anything, but in one of the last diary entries, he says that, you know, they uh, some of their boys hit the naval vessels of the Americans and took them out. It's completely false. Nothing. Doubtful. Happened. Yeah, yeah, doubtful. Yeah, they're, they're just, they're hearing explosions and they're just assuming things. Like, they're told, there, there are Japanese bombing attempts, but they completely fail. Uh, the weather didn't permit anything. They tried to bomb the naval ships. They end up just throwing provisions in Chichigov Harbor every time they show up. And eventually, the, uh, the air forces from the Japanese coming out of Hokkaido, which is a long trip for them, uh, they give up. They, they can't do anything. And they know the Americans have, quote-unquote, air supremacy, but not very useful with the weather anyways. So now we come up to the 18th. Basically, this is the end of the amphibious phase. So Admiral Rockwell, all the big ships are gone. You just got a few little ships, but everybody that can be landed is landed. Like uh, destroyers, basically? Yeah, torpedo boats, destroyers, uh, you know, the landing craft yeah. kind of boats. Yeah. The little guys. There's about 11,500 American troops on Atu. They've suffered 1,100 casualties, 500 of which are from exposure. 
pretty that's pretty nuts. Just a few that's days high. from exposure. So Landrum is looking at this and he's like, okay, um, gives a day for the guys to reorganize and he looks at the maps. He's going to see what he's going to do. So he decides his southern force, they're going to hit Clevisy Pass. Northern force, they're going to hit Prendergast Ridge. And it's once you take those two points, you could probably link up. And from there, you can hit the other ridges to get to Chichigolf. So uh, in the meantime, the southern force did receive construction road equipment because of what Brown had asked for. And they're building like a road through Massacre Valley to get the artillery up. And that's, that's doing well. On the 19th, they begin a new offensive. And now they've got their artillery. They got aircraft bombarding when they can. And they're hitting the Japanese in the heights. So the Japanese are protecting places like Clevisy Pass, uh, which is very fortified. Mm. And they have this little point on it called Point Able that is uh, the strongest point that they got. Lieutenant Samuel Clevisy of H Company, the 2nd Battalion, 17th Regiment, he's assaulting this point and he's killed by a Japanese sniper. Thus, he gives his name, Clevisy, to Clevisy Pass. Meanwhile, in the north, the northern force, they're fighting for their lives, trying to hit Prendergast Ridge. And the, uh, on that same day, the, the fresh 1st Battalion, 4th Regiment, they're thrown right through the southern force. They advance through them and they're going to go attack Prendergast Ridge from the south to help the northern force. And they do this like, you know, they're, they're actually trained for Arctic warfare. So they're kind of like a shock troop in all of this. They yeah. get right they're, atop. They're ace in the hole. Yeah. This is like uh, during the battle, uh, after the Battle of Moscow, when the Siberian Corps just shows up and hits the Germans in the counterattack. Germans are like, oh my God, what's this? <laughs> you know. So this company, they, they get atop Prendergast Ridge right away during the night. And they're going and they're advancing to a place called Serrano Holtz Pass. It's a little bit further in. Lieutenant Joseph Prendergast of the B Company, 4th Regiment, he's killed by a Japanese machine gun fire during this action. And thus, again, his name is going to say as soon as I heard his name. Yeah. If you, uh, if you ever learn about the New Guinea campaign during World War II, just like any of the names of the little ridges, hills and stuff, it's just Australian soldiers that were killed taking them. There's a lot of them too. Hell, hell on earth. Yep. So Dr. Tatsuguchi, he writes again on the 19th. The hard fighting of our 303rd Battalion in Massacre Bay is fierce, but it is to our advantage. We've captured enemy weapons and used them to fight the enemy closely under fog. Five of our men and one medical NCO have died. I heard that the enemy pilots dropped several bombs near Imonose. That's Fishhook Ridge. The enemy naval gunfiring near our hospital is fierce stopping about 30 yards away. And what he thinks is naval gunfiring around his hospital could only possibly... the artillery? It could be, at this point, maybe artillery or aerial bombing, because they are bombing Chichigov Harbor. I would say it's aerial bombing, but again, like this is a guy who's hiding for his life. He doesn't really know what's going on out there. So he assumes, you know, it's, uh, it's a naval bombardment. Yeah, because most of the naval forces have pulled out at this point. Yeah. And uh, actually... But do the Japanese, like, common person, like, do they know that? I don't know, you know that. Uh, I mean, the USS Nassau yeah. uh, was the, one of the last vessels to leave, and it launches, like, a last sortie of Wildcats. It launches eight of them, and uh, five of them are taken down uh, from weather and actually anti-aircraft fire, probably. And uh, we get another uh, writing from Tatsuguchi on the 20th was strafed when noon, and the deck crew launched four wildcats amputating a patient's arm. 
Yeah, so he, he it's a little incoherent how he writes, by the way. It is the first time since 1.30 p.m., followed by four more flights of four moving over Chichigov Harbor, and I went in between 3.40 and 5.50. The pilots bombed, and air raid shelter went off. Nervous, our CO is severe, and he has said his last word to his officers and NCOs that he will die tomorrow, gave all of his articles away. Hasty chap, this fellow. The officers on the front are doing a fine job. Everyone who heard this became desperate, and things became disorderly. <laughs> so you can see a little chaos. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. As soon as you know your superior commander, you like starts admitting, okay, it's kind of lost. We're gonna die tomorrow. He's like, giving away his <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, he still has some. Well, what What are the casualties like for the Japanese at this point? Uh, not as high as uh, for the Americans. But uh, so, like, they started off with twenty five hundred, so maybe like a few hundred at this point. Yep, it's just about a few hundred. What's actually getting the Americans is exposure, and the reason why is the Americans are on the offensive; they're moving the whole time. So, on top of having bad gear, because the Japanese aren't suffering from exposure like they are, like they have good winter gear, but the Japanese aren't physically moving themselves, so they're conserving their energy. I mean, they don't have much food, mind you, but they're not moving much. So when they're on these hills, it's like they they stay on the hills. That actually mm-hmm. is a huge bonus for them. So these Americans, every time they move somewhere, it's like, okay, you're using energy, you're going to get further. Basically, anything that gets you wet, that's the enemy. And a lot of them don't know just like, they don't even know the simple things that you take your sock off, you take your boot off, you take a second to rub your, your feet or whatever, get some blood in them and all that. They're not doing that. So a lot of these guys, it's it's trench foot that's getting a lot of them. That's terrible because they're going to have to and get as you're moving off. forward, you have to update your... Uh your logistic train uh like a lot of their winter gear was supposed to uh, um like be sent to them after the arrival like yeah uh so they they have these rucksacks that would have had their sleeping tent for example yeah and uh they're not given that at the beginning because it's too cumbersome so the the military is like uh don't worry uh you guys just go forward to the front line and there's gonna these are gonna be brought up to you it takes days for for just their their sleeping bags so they're they're out there just sleeping, like imagine sleeping outside in Oof. winter. Like here, it's it's awful. So they're miserable and it, it's rough. There's so many pictures of this place, and there is also uh, footage, and you you can see they're they're roughed up. It's bad. So uh, the following morning, the 11th Air Force, uh, led by Colonel Erickson, uh, they're bombing every building they can at Chichigolf Village. So there's some medium and uh, small bombers hitting this place. Uh, mm-hmm. On the 21st, the Southern Force, they're uh, hitting Point Abel still. Uh, Company E of the 32nd Regiment, they charge the hill, and they kill every single Japanese in a company. It's a massacre. So Wow, they, yeah, company, so a couple hundred right there. Yeah, yeah, they storm this. The Japanese literally die to the last man. It's horrible, horrible fighting there. Meanwhile, the Northern Force, they're securing the western portion of Prendergast Ridge because the, the 4th Regiment's really helping them. And Dr. Tatsuguchi writes a really short entry on the 21st. At 6 a.m., strafing killed one medical man, Okayaki, wounded in the right thigh, fractured arm. During the night, a motor shell came awfully close. So, it's artillery that seems to be hitting where he is. And he's near Chichigov Harbor, so that means, like, no matter where you are, you're, you're getting bombed now. The battle is getting bad. For at two, uh, Japanese Imperial HQ, they issue order number 246, that's Operation KE, 
and they're going to be evacuating Kiska at this time using submarines and if possible at two, but that won't happen. So it's uh, possible. Yeah, exactly. Submarines try to get to uh, at two. They can't. Blo- they can't get past the blockade. Uh, there, there is a single submarine that actually does try to attack. Um, I think it's the USS Nassau, but misses. Nothing else really happens naval wise. Uh, so the Attu garrison is doomed. Now the Japanese know that this is the case. They on the twenty second they send uh, they start sending a lot of bombers. So there's about fifteen Betty bombers of the twenty fourth Air Flotilla. They're coming out of Paramashiro, and uh, they try to bomb like the American naval forces. Try to drop provisions, but they can't see anything. So they end up always dropping at Chichikov Harbor near the garrison force. Meantime, Southern Force, uh, they're able to get past Point Able after killing every single Japanese in that company. And now they're atop a place called Serrano's. The Americans now have, they just unleash an unbelievable amount of firepower. It's 32 heavy machine guns, 14 37 millimeter anti-tank guns, 23 81 millimeter motors, a section of 75 millimeter howitzers, and some 105 millimeter howitzers. And all of this in simultaneous fire is just put upon the Japanese, completely just shatters this Japanese force on Sarah Nose. The 3rd Battalion, 17th Regiment, after hitting them with this, they storm up Sarah Nose and they just find only dazed Japanese. Everybody else is dead. Whoever's alive, they're like completely, you know, we hear the ringing in your ear, you know what's going on. Uh, this is a force led by Major Watanabe's 300 Third Battalion. They're killed, like, to a man. They're just annihilated. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion, 4th Regiment, and Northern Force, they storm the rest of Pendergast Ridge, and this just forces the Japanese up there. They have to flee on the eastern side of the ridge. They're just leaving. So now the Southern Force can see into Jim Hook Valley. At this point, the Southern and Northern Force, they can basically link up. And they are. Uh, they have patrols linking up. So the situation has completely changed. Yeah, it's starting to look more in the Americans' favor. Yeah. Yamazaki, he receives a report, and he knows that that's basically, this is his inner defensive perimeter now. But he has managed to keep his forces intact. So a lot of people are getting killed, but they're getting dragged further and further internally. So he has more concentration of forces. He's actually more deadly now. So his men are going to, there's going to be more men manning defensive positions. Now, Dr. Katsuguchi would write in the 22nd, By naval gun firing, a hit was scored on a pillar pole of tents for patients, and the tent gave in and two died instantly. From 2 a.m. in the morning until 4 p.m., stayed in foxholes. The day's rations, one go, five shakar, which is, uh, says here, 1.5 pounds, nothing more. Everybody looked around for food and stole everything they could find. So as you can see, if he's talking about this, he's pretty close to the garrison headquarters. That means that they're running out of food completely. Yeah, he's describing the situation collapsing. Yeah. And uh, 1.5 pounds is all that he could see for the rations per man. That's It's getting bad. On the 23rd, the northern force, now they're linked up with the southern force. And they see another incoming thing of 16 Betty bombers that try and hit the American positions. But they're intercepted by P-38 lightnings. And uh, they managed to shoot nine of them at the cost of two lightnings, which is catastrophic for wow, the Japanese pretty, Air Force. Yeah, that's uh... yeah, that's that's bad losses. That's going to turn away future. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's going to be many more Bettys coming after that because it's going to seem untenable. 
Doctor. Yeah, I guess it's it's far out that they don't have fighter uh, escorts at the time. Yeah, no, they. I I don't think the I don't think the zero fighter can actually fly in the conditions. I think the zero fighters, uh, it's too. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's a little bit too fragile to the climate. I think you're 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 risking like it's like there's no chance the pots can survive. So their bigger their beddies maybe can go through it. I don't think their smaller aircraft can make that. Yeah, just something that's often overlooked, like a heating system. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Tatsuguchi, he wrote this on the 23rd. It sleeted and was extremely cold. Stayed in Mizumi barracks alone. A great number of shells were dropped by naval gunfire. Rocks and mud fell all over the roof. It fell down. In a foxhole about 50 yards away, Hayazaka, a medical man, died instantly by a piece of shrapnel through the heart. So, yeah, things aren't going well for <laughs> poor Dr. Tesaguchi. He's seeing people die around him, and he's just trying, he's basically just trying to survive. Uh, a lot of the medical personnel as well. Yeah, he's, he's going to be one of the last ones uh, surviving in the medical team, I think. Uh, on the 24th, both forces are now together, and they're simultaneously assaulting what is like the Holtz Bay-Chichigolf Harbor Pass. It's a large pass that kind of goes over to Chichigolf. And they got aerial support and artillery support. A lot of artillery at this point, because the roads were built up Massacre Valley. Uh, they also happen to have uh, some heavy, some medium bombers coming in that are helping them out. So some B-24s, B-25s. And they're dropping like half tons of bombs. There are like tons of bombs being dropped down. And I uh, got a quote from a war correspondent, Howard Handelman. He described it as the best air show of the war front too. So basically, this aerial bombardment was probably the most successful up to, to this date that they had seen. Now, Landrum, he's dragging his artillery up this new road that's built in the Masker Valley. It's a lot easier for the guys now. And they're looking to take the Holtz Serana Pass. And uh, there's a place called Newman Peak. They're going to hit this on the 25th. On the 26th, Private Joe Martinez of K Company, he heroically leads his men through enemy fire. And this guy by himself, he storms into Japanese trenches. And he's killing Japanese with grenades and bar rifle fire. He kills about five of them by himself. He runs up and he seizes this crest on uh, Fishhook Ridge. And he's been shot a few times and he ends up dying on the crest, but he took it. And he's going to posthumously receive the Medal of Honor. It's pretty... Uh, Good for him. Not a lot of those were handed out. And uh, I don't know if it's the only one in Attu, but uh, he got it for that. Now, the only obstacle that lies between the Americans and getting to Chichikov Harbor or basically just shooting upon it with their artillery properly because they can't see it well, is a place called Buffalo Ridge. So this is kind of the last ridge. Dr. Tatsuguchi wrote a lot at this point. So for the over the course of three days, I'll read it. There's quite a few entries. So on the, on the 24th, he wrote, Naval gun firing, aerial bombardment, trench warfare, the worst is yet to come. The enemy is constructing a position. Commander died at Imanoze, Fishhook Ridge. They cannot accommodate their patients. It has been said that Masker Bay District, the road coming through Sector Unit's headquarters, is isolated. I'm suffering from diarrhea and feeling dizzy. So, he's uh, starting to suffer, probably from a lack of food, mind you, or he's eating bad stuff. And the next day, he wrote, yeah. Consciousness becomes vague. One tent burnt down by a hit from incendiary bombs. Strafing planes hit the next room, two hits from 50 caliber shell. One stopped in the ceiling, the other penetrated. My room is an awful mess from sand and pebbles that have come through the roof. First lieutenant from medical corps is wounded. There was a ceremony to grant the imperial edict. The last line of Imanuze, Fishhook Ridge, was broken through, 
no hope for reinforcements, will die for the cause of Imperial Edict. So, he thinks he's going to die. And he's giving the Japanese mentality to how he's going to do it for the Emperor and for the cause. Yeah, and the writing's on the wall, you know. On the 26th, he says, Diary broke. Good for him. Continues steady. Pain severe. Took everything in pills. Morphine and opium. Then everybody slept well. Strafing by planes. Rofe broke through. There are less than 700 left from more than 3,500. Wounded from coast defense units. Field hospital held post office. The rest are on the firing line. So basically what he just said is a lot of people are dead. They're down to just hundreds of men now. 700 by his estimate. Now, on that uh, same day, on the, well, actually on the 27th, the Americans are now, they're clawing their way up Buffalo's Ridge, and they're attacking this last position. And they're unleashing uh, heavy artillery on it. They're storming it countless times, but the Japanese have concentrated fields of fire, and they're really giving it to them. Now, at some point, the Japanese can't fight anymore, and they have to give up Buffalo Ridge. When Landrum manages to seize this ridge, he can now see into Chichigov Harbor, and he can uh, assemble his artillery on these focal points, and uh, basically this is going to be the last drive. They're going to fire into the Chichigov Harbor, and then they're just going to kill the Japanese, you know, to a man, or try to get them to surrender, but obviously they don't really expect that. This this is kind of yeah, early. Yeah, it doesn't happen often. Well, it's a little early into the war, so they, they don't know necessarily that yet, but there's been a few battles. They, they kind of understand what to expect. Uh, Landrum decides to airdrop leaflets over Chichigov, demanding that Yamazaki surrenders. Uh, what's interesting, I find, is Landrum uses certain terms. Like he says, your men have performed worthy of the highest military tradition. Why don't you send a delegation under a white flag and let's talk this out. Avoid senseless loss of life. So clearly Landrum had been reading reports from like the South Pacific and he knows like how fanatical they can be. And he's just trying to like talk in such a way to get Yamazaki to perhaps decide to come over. But this is where I find it gets really interesting for this battle and what makes it stand apart from some others. Yamazaki, he talks to his staff and uh, he decides, you know, okay, they're cornered. Their backs are to the sea. They're not going to be rescued. And if there is any rescue party, it's going to be months later. It's not, it's not happening. They can't defend the area they're in because they're on open flat grounds now. They got no concealment. They'll just be massacred. He reads the leaflets out to people and he kind of like laughs about it. And he's like, we're all going to just die to a man. We're going to bonsai charge the entire, all of them. We're going to die in a blaze of glory. It's pretty crazy. So yeah, there's 800 men left. He's got 800 guys, and he's like, we're going to do a mass counterattack aimed directly at a location called Engineer Hill, and that's exactly where the Americans have deployed their artillery. The Japanese can see it from their vantage. He plans to charge through Jim Hook Valley, so that's uh, the main pass to get over there, where there are American units, and he's going to try and hit the American artillery to steal it and just shoot everywhere upon the Americans, destroy as much of the supply depot there as possible and then the best best case scenario they flee into the mountains and maybe survive as gorillas until there's a rescue operation but he thinks they're all going to just die it's going to be a last bonsai charge it's so like, he's planning to just he's trying to do as much damage as he can mm -hmm. before you know 
the ultimate demise. It's, you know, you're going to Valhalla here. You're, you're going, you're, this is the last charge. He's planning to die. Uh, we got one last diary entry from Tatsuguchi on the 28th. He says, Today at 8 p.m. o'clock, we assembled in front of the headquarters. The field hospital took part two. The last assault is to be carried out. All the patients in the hospital were made to commit suicide. Only 33 years of living, and I am to die here. I have no regrets. Banzai to the emperor. I am grateful that I have my beloved wife, who loved me to the last. Until we meet again, grant you Godspeed. Misako, probably his kid, who just became four years old, will grow up unhindered. That's what it is, his kid. I feel sorry for you, Mitsuko. Born mm. February this year, and I never will see your. You will never see your father. Goodbye. So that's the last diary entry, and uh, we don't know uh, how exactly he died. Two guys say that they killed him: uh, Master Sergeant William Laird and Private John Hearn. Uh, one says that he shot that Doctor Katsuguchi. Katsuguchi. The other guy says that he killed him with a grenade. And there was this kind of cinematic drama. Reaccount re where Tatsuguchi is like holding up a Bible coming out of a cage in the cave and he's like shot at. I don't believe that one. And that was from some other guy, but uh, that account doesn't seem to make sense. But mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Tatsuguchi does end up dying in this last hurrah. So, 800 of these Japanese. It's a great personal account of, uh, I just got to say, in general, for all his, uh, his diary entries, it's been. Uh, very enlightening of the situation on the ground uh, from Japanese perspective. Yeah, and you rarely, it's rare to have good accounts like primary sources like this because usually things get destroyed and uh, burnt. Like a lot of documents get burnt by these units. But, uh, anyways, mm -hmm. this, this private diary survived and uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty famous uh, for people who research the illusions. But uh, the last hurrah comes in the morning of the 29th. Yamazaki, he leads 800, basically they're starving men in this wild bonsai charge. And they're going through a place called Lake Cori, so there's a little lake there, and they're in the lower slopes of Fishhook Ridge. They smash right into Company B of the 32nd Regiment, who, to this day, there's no acknowledgement as to how this happened. For some reason, they were all having their breakfast to the rear of their defensive position, so they weren't manning their positions. They're taken by complete surprise. They're completely overwhelmed and they end up fleeing up Buffalo Ridge for safety. Yamazaki's force, they continue down Jim Fish Valley and they come into this place called Siddons Valley and they then crash into the 3rd Battalion, 17th Regiment and they cause massive casualties. The Americans had no idea what was going on. Uh, here the Japanese make a typical Japanese move and they waste over 30 minutes. Uh, there's like a small medical station there. They start killing helpless patients to a man, uh, glory killing, if you will. And there was a Nisei interpreter named Peter Nakao, and he recalled seeing or someone seeing this event. He says it was pitch black when the enemy began the bunzai attack. All of a sudden the enemy was upon us. We could not see anything in the darkness except for tracer bullets flying in every direction. Leaving the bayoneted dead and wounded behind them, the Japanese went past us and continued to the medic unit station to our rear. They headed for the ammunition dump behind the medics. So they're performing atrocities against wounded med uh, people in medical tents, and they apparently waste about three minutes. And I would say that this kind of lost, uh, their, all of their momentum was lost by this. So Yamazaki, as I said, he was going to hit Engineer Hill. The guys on top Engineer Hill receive a report of their incoming because of the 30-minute delay. And now they're preparing, yeah. yeah. 
unfortunately distracted yeah unfortunately the people on engineer hill aren't uh they're not infantry so general arnold receives word he's up there uh he's in control of artillery crews and he basically he's just got a bunch of guys that are service guys artillery men and engineers they don't even have automatic weapons but they have defensive positions he gets them all to man every single place that they can and he just hands out grenades to the guys and he goes you know throw the grenades we have to withhold this line until someone can save our ass because the japanese are coming they meet the japanese charge with like just a volley of grenades and they're using their artillery from point blank range so they're visually seeing the japanese running at them while using heavy artillery so you have to imagine that's pretty fucking insane yeah they're within meters distance it becomes bayonet versus bayonet but as they're doing the hand-to-hand combat the fourth regiment which is again the best trained of these bunch they show up to the scene they engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat they actually just run up and they fight them yamazaki performs a second banzai charge because they got repelled momentum is completely lost he has no more element of surprise he's wielding uh his own family's katana so his ancestral katana and we think that he was he took a m1 garen bolt to the head probably and he got killed now the few hundred japanese that are still alive brutally wounded they have to pull back they're within this uh huge valley and the americans are everywhere on the heights so they're surrounding them and they're closing in we're told that maybe there was 500 japanese at this point that were still alive wounded and as the americans are coming in closer and closer it's really foggy they can't see anything but there was an account that apparently uh, a few americans could see through the fog one japanese guy stand up amongst this group of people he was speaking to them. The guy couldn't understand what he was saying. And then all of a sudden, all of them start pulling out hand grenades and they put it to their heads and their stomachs. Mass suicide? Pulling. Yeah. And uh, not many people got to see this happen. They heard it all over the island because it was just explosions. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. And it was people crying out in explosions, like saying, you know, the names of their moms and their wives. And uh, it's a mass a mass suicide and there are photos of the aftermath we're talking hundreds of people yeah wow. hundreds uh a lot of anyone who who would have seen that like that is talked about traumatic oh wait, this left a haunting nightmares for a lot of people there was a lot of war yeah. correspondents who got to see that so they got to see the aftermath of this field of just dead suicide of japanese a uh, war correspondent robert Sherod described what he saw he had this to say the explosive charge blasted away their vital organs. Probably one in four held a grenade against his head. There were many headless Jap bodies between Massacre Bay and Chichigolf. Sometimes the grenade split the head in half, leaving the right face on one shoulder, the left on the other. Two bodies were burnt to a crisp, one atop of another, fused into one charred hump. So, some nightmare fuel here. But and, and this is what the, the war correspondents are writing. Like so yeah. this gets back to the American people. This is what they're reading about. This is what the Japanese are, are capable of. This is what to expect. So it's estimated the battle saw nearly three thousand. So it was I have a I have one number here that says two thousand eight hundred and seventy two Japanese were killed in action or committed suicide, which could have been like five hundred of them. And uh, twenty eight were captured. Yeah, that's like the only survivors. Like it's it's just a couple dozen people. Yep. 
The Americans suffered 549 deaths. And that's just because they were captured before they could... Uh... Yeah, exactly. They were captured in isolated pockets. So, you, you know, you, you take out, let's say, a company on a hill. There's always going to yeah. be some guy who's just, like, stuck. And he can't... like One person dazed, then you're able to get him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's usually when they're unconscious, like... Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Americans suffered pretty heavily, too. It was 549 deaths, 1,148 wounded... 1,200 exposure injuries with another 614 who were, uh, you would call them sick, disease. A lot of that is uh, frostbite, gangrene, trench foot. A lot of amputees, too. Uh, they had to get their feet cut off and stuff. Horrible. Uh, it's an overlooked battle, for sure. Um, a lot of people wouldn't even think about it. It doesn't really fit into the minds of most. Uh, I found the reason why I wanted to cover this is I just found the way that Yamazaki decided to go out was it. I mean, you could you could say it was in line with The Last Samurai. Like he decided to end it all with a large bonsai charge into just to, into oblivion. And it was eight, like about 800 of these guys doing that. That's insane. It almost, like I said, it reminds me of uh, the colossal bonsai charge in Saipan. I mean, that one was bigger, mind you, but yeah. Yeah, this is what I knew about uh, the Battle of Atu. Like, ultimately, it was an American victory, but there was a notorious last stand uh, bonsai charge involving hundreds of uh, Japanese. And uh, it's kind of rare. Dead to the last man. It's kind of rare, but um, Landrum had a little, like, wooden sign put up in gesture to the Japanese who died there. Uh, very rare to see because of the the heated nature between the Americans and the Japanese and the hate. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it was just Landrum's character or something, but the Americans were certainly impressed. And they wrote like a little oh, gesture. I like, I guess in a sense, like he was humbled by the Japanese defense. Like they did put up a, a valiant stand. Yeah. it's uh, And on it, honestly, there was no cakewalk. For an island in the middle of the North Pacific that uh, maybe could have been used to bomb the Japanese home islands. I mean, the guys who end up getting the island, uh, they they want that to happen. But the Central Pacific and the, the Southern Pacific, like with MacArthur, ends up being the actual direct route to the home islands, obviously. Yeah. And that's the Battle of Attu. Wow. And uh, for those... Very fascinating. For those listening to this, I don't. Even, I don't think I even said at the beginning. Like uh, this will premiere first on the Patreon and then on the audio podcast platforms. Uh, but I'll admit, uh, I've I've already written a script for a very long YouTube episode, which I will uh, I'll animate and I'll do everything. I'm making a map as we speak and stuff. And a lot that you heard here will will be part of that script but uh, yeah i want to do an audio rendition and you know to get your thoughts in on this because it's an unusual one it doesn't fit all the other like, it fits in the brutality but it's like you it's hard to imagine this happening in winter conditions well i i would say your uh your title is definitely appropriate blood banzai and blizzard yeah i i hope that's the one i'll use because I, I wasn't sure i was really looking for something catchy because i want i want a dramatic flair to this like it's not like i really want for my content on like I'd say other people on YouTube, I, I kind of want the human emotions and, you know, the drama and that, like the cinematic effect to it. I just want to get that feeling. Well, you definitely get a, a first person emotional account from uh, the doctor. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure I'm going to make sure that the doctor is going to be in it because I, I found it was really interesting to have his viewpoints on each day by day to f get the feeling of this one guy and how he's surviving. 
yeah, it, it really gives it a perspective. Uh... By the way, I have a, a rather long quote from one guy who complained about uh, what was happening with the clothing. If you want, I can read it. It gives a little more flavor. Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. So this is Dean Gales of the 7th Division. Uh, he's a veteran of Atu. And that doesn't say what company it was in. He had this to say. But anyway, we moved up, kept moving up the valley, and of course we found out that we were so ill-equipped clothing-wise. We had leather blutcher boots, and being continually wet all the time, they just fell apart. And after about two weeks of fighting, they called us back to the beach, and they said, take your shoes and socks off of what you got left. I was so amazed. My feet were black with, I guess, fungus or mold. Mold, I suppose. And they said, wipe all that off. So I wiped it off. And they brought out a 25-pound bucket of lard from the Navy and said, coat your feet with the lard. Put on your dry socks, new boots, some kind of other boots, and get going. Well, this resulted in what they called immersion foot up there, which is a combination of frostbite and fungus. And some of the guys, when they would rub the mold off their feet, it became infected and gangrene set in. There were some amputations. There was one or two, I'm sure, that died from gangrene because they didn't know what it was. Or, I mean, they weren't aware of how to combat it. But to get back to the uniform, the light jackets we had were just nothing for what we needed. We needed parkas. We needed shoe packs on our feet. We needed stuff we could put over our heads in the wind and the storms and stuff. We were never given gloves. What they called wristless is what we had. This wrist-type deal that, you know, your fingers came out so you could fire and stuff, but... We, we would have to put our hands in our pockets just so we can keep them warm. Anyway, we were just equipped for that. There were other units up that were from Alaska Defense, and they had shoe packs, and they had parkas, and they had Arctic sleeping bags. Now, we didn't have any Arctic sleeping bags until, oh, I'd say about two or three, a good two weeks until we were on the island. They brought up these Arctic sleeping bags, and we were like two-unit affairs. You had the inner one that would zip around you, and you had your head out. You had the outer one that would come over your head, and we'd split them up. And then we'd some nights, somebody had to get a sleeping bag, and the rest of them just didn't. We didn't have oh, enough to boy. get around. <laughs> That's it. This guy's, I think this guy complaining says it all about what most of them are going through. Yeah, and, and you know, their uh, lack of knowledge and weathering uh, like yeah, no, like, that kind of climate. These, uh, oh, these, got, uh, these boys came from California. Put some fat on it. Yeah, I, that was a weird one. I don't know how that worked out. but I never heard of that before. The, these boys are coming from the Mojave Desert in California and stuff, and they're just tossed on that too with very little training. It's like, this is brutal. Imagine you, you're spending like months training for desert warfare, and they're like, oh, you're going yeah. to that too. Yeah, I, I, was, I was asking that earlier um, where this uh, division is based out of because usually that uh, um, you can get an idea of where the majority of the, the troops are coming from. So yeah. like, Southern California. Like you said, like, yeah, so, SoCal. <laughs> and it really yeah, it, that, it that, sucks that's quite different. But yeah, and uh, so I think we covered pretty much everything. I think of you know the rationing was bad for the Japanese. They had better clothing. The Americans they had an enormous issue with their clothing, but they they did have food, so they weren't suffering from that. But uh, yeah, the battle. I mean, of they both had their they both had their advantages at the. The beginning of the battle like uh, the japanese better they were better outfitted in clothing um, ultimately not enough food and they didn't have a supply chain uh, whereas the americans had the numbers and uh the supply chain but they just were not equipped at the the onset and 
Yeah. It's, uh, that's a pretty bad o- oversight. Like, they, you could have uh, probably prevented a lot of those uh, uh, casualties early on if they were, you know, outfitted, like, geared up properly from the beginning. Oh, yeah, I guess I'll, I can mention La- the, the the significance uh, of the battle is they learned that lesson and they applied it mm-hmm. uh, to Europe. So they knew that there was going to be, like, um, places in France, for example, actually, would get kind of cold up in the heights, so... They they did realize that uh, there was going to have to be a change in the gear and that they had made a, a gross error with the, the waterproof thing. And uh, there would be changes to future operations that would be in a colder climate. But um, other other than the Battle of Kiska, if you can call it that, they didn't fight anybody except for kind of themselves. Uh, that actually ends the Aleutian Islands campaign and thus... For for the majority of the rest of the war, um, the Americans try to set up these air bases to hit uh, the northern home islands like Hokkaido, but um, not too much really occurs because by you know late mid forty four and you know forty five, they're hitting the home islands through the Central Pacific and the South. Yeah, they're closer in the in the central. It it seems unnecessary having uh, that northern front in the Aleutians. A lot of people say the entire thing was unnecessary, but uh, again. The Japanese unnecessarily invaded them, and they had taken territory from the United States, and I can't think of any other time anyone seized American territory, other than, like, you know, the Revolutionary War, or the War of 1812. Yeah, I was going to say, of course, War of 1812. Yeah, well, go Canada. <laughs> I mean, go, it's more of the British than the natives, but, you know, yeah. Well, no, we had our, uh, our Canadian militias, we're a part of it. Yeah. But uh, that's been the battle of that too, and I don't know. Is there anything you'd uh, like to say? I mean, or one off? thing that rubbed me the wrong way was the, um, like, what happened to General Brown. Uh, all I remember, you know, like none of it was, none of it was uh, his fault or that, and for him being like a scapegoat into the the Navy, like putting him under the fire like that. He uh, he got a terrible repertoire from the Battle of Atu, even though you'd think the commanders, after seeing what happens afterward, would realize, like, this guy wasn't in the wrong. But he ends up getting sent to mm-hmm. uh, the United States homeland, and he takes over for uh, training. And uh, he's doing a lot of, he's doing non-combat duty stuff. So, you know, he's not what you call a frontline general anymore. Uh, he was training, I think he was training men in Georgia. <laughs> And, uh, you know, men that are actually... And like you said, he was... uh, And he was, uh, from then on, overlooked for promotion. Yeah, uh, personally... That that was the peak of his career. Like, how unfortunate. Yeah, I can't remember which one of them it was, but, uh, by the way, the guys who are in control of the Alaska Command, uh, some of them are really nefarious dirty players who who did a legal activity to get aircraft a lot of weird stories about the uh, the building of the air force like stealing old planes and stuff but uh, one of them i think it might, might have been do it he personally said things that led to uh major general brown not getting a promotion so that's that really sucks and i think that's just really mean i don't know why the guy went yeah that's, that's spiteful and uncalled for yeah, the the guys. I mean, you see that uh, you see a lot of that inter-service rivalry from the Japanese, and you don't hear about it often enough uh, from the Americans. But it definitely was uh, in existence. Yeah, it it has a lot to do with uh, the guys who had to work together for the. I'm, I'm calling it Alaska Command. I don't, that's not really proper, but um, 
they didn't like each other and they were all fighting for resources and i'm like not even just navy and army like the guy who was in control of like the air forces he he was he was stealing from like the army guys and stuff it was really weird and mm. uh that's why general brown and was like the rest of them he was brushing shoulders with these guys and they all hated each other but they ganged up on him i can't remember what he did to really piss them off but he uh, he must have made an impression because they went out of their way to make sure that he didn't get a promotion at one point that sucks it sounded like it so I say so yeah, he's a rather it's a rather sad story for him because I mean he didn't really he didn't do anything wrong and the guy who took over his command literally went on the record to say I am not changing anything. But the, and it didn't sound like he he vouched for him after the fact like no or maybe he did. Uh, actually, I think maybe he did. I'd have to read up on it because uh, I don't remember. Been juggling so many things in my head. Uh, just a, it. It, it all sounds so petty. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, that was uh, definitely a very fascinating uh, topic. I think a lot from that. Yeah. So uh, just to end off by telling the audience, uh, for those of you, because uh, honestly, the, of all the audiences I have, it's a little weird. You know, I get some comments for the Pacific War week by week. I get some comments for Age of Conquest uh, from my YouTube channel. Of course, it's YouTube. I can see and get comments. And uh, the Kings and Generals Discord for all that, I get the comments over there. But for you guys who listen to the Pacific War Channel podcast, you're like this silent group. And there's actually, there's a lot of you. I'm surprised by the amount of downloads. I'm actually shocked. And I don't really know what to do with the audio podcast because I'm, I'm doing two podcasts weekly. It's like it's too much work for me to really do a, a fundamental other one. But... I want to try and do something new here. And uh, I was doing some polls on the YouTube asking what people wanted. And they kind of said they wanted a mix of everything. But if possible, if you like this format where it's like kind of a single person narration with a co-host who, you know, dabbles in with questions and stuff. If you like that, please, can you let me know? Best way to do so. Go on the YouTube. Go over to my Pacific War channel. Just randomly comment on any video. I'll, I'll see it. Or uh, you can catch the Pacific War Channel Discord. Uh, again, go to my YouTube channel. And there's a link there you can find. And you can just say whatever you want there. So let me know what you want to hear more about. And I hope to do more of these in the future uh, with Ian, hopefully. or the Yeah, it's definitely uh, fun being a part of it. It's the first time uh, we've tried this. Like I've been on your, your podcast um, on set several times. Uh, yeah. as the first uh, doing it uh, like this. And again, uh, Ian is writing a little something for my Patreons, and uh, it's going to be about Churchill. And uh, maybe yeah, I got later, a couple things for Churchill working. Maybe later we can do something similar to this, and Ian can take the reins of the first person, and uh, I'll just add, I'll ask weird questions. Yeah, just uh, I tell a story, and you know, it's nice having a that person in direct contact to you know listen in as you're describing the events and posing the questions that. The audience would probably have as well and yeah, exactly. so you can tackle those like right away all right then uh so uh thank you again ian for being here yeah, thank and you for having me it was fun this has been the pacific war channel over and out